Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be chatting with Elon Abrel, who is a cultural anthropologist, a professor at Wesleyan University, and the author of Saving Animals, Multi-Species Ecologies of Rescue and Care, which takes a serious look at the challenges and benefits of something we're so used to that perhaps we don't notice how extraordinary they are. Animal sanctuaries. It is true. They are pretty much the best places on earth. I kind of take them for granted. And yeah, he looks at a lot of the difficulties that are faced in, in it's not exclusively farm animal sanctuaries. I just think it's exciting to have an academic do a deep dive into this topic. And don't worry, Elon is not super academic. Like, don't, it's not boring. He's actually a really charming guy. We also <laughs> talk a lot about the latest controversies about uh, charitable giving and effective altruism. I think it's very funny that you just for the you just said about your guest, he's not boring. <laughs> well, you know, you say somebody's an academic and some people will think, oh, that's great. They're really serious. And other people will like remember school and yeah. and, and worry that they're going to fall asleep. You will not fall asleep, I promise you. I'm sure Elon really appreciates all of this. <laughs> He's going to definitely put it on his website as like a testimonial. <laughs> so, okay, I have something that I wanted to bring up. And so I saved it for now because why not bring it up in front of our listeners who will probably have opinions on it as well. I was recently researching something for my Substack, jasminesinger.substack.com shameless plug. And I was writing something about how to stop thinking about work when you're taking time off. And that's because it's something I struggle with. It's something I know you struggle with. And I said in the Substack, like, it's not like I have this down, but I'm experimenting with different ways of doing it. And so in addition to asking around about like how other people accomplish it, I started to just research it. And I, I found my way to this article and it was good. They had great suggestions for what to do. You know, just like one thing that springs to mind that I found intriguing is schedule in worry time. And I was like, I kind that resonated with me. Like it kind of gives me permission to stop thinking about something until it's on the calendar because A, I love calendaring and B, I have an OCD mind. And so if I am thinking about something, I'll be afraid that if I stop thinking about it, I'll forget. So just something as simple as putting it in my calendar or whatever is useful. Then I get to this section where it says, paint rocks, okay? So it says paint rocks and leave them around. What does that have to do with anything? Why would you do that? It's a way of offering kindness to other people and diverting your attention. Why is that kind? Because you could write, you could make little smiley faces or little hearts or... Don't do that for me, okay? You could write live, laugh, love on a rock (laughs) or something like that. Please, I'm begging you, do not do this for me. Would that mean that I would then have to save that rock for all of eternity? No, 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 it's not. Because you get incredibly hurt if... Hold on. This is to be left out in the wild. That's even more ridiculous. Okay, so this got me to thinking. And I have painted rocks as an art project. I'm sure you have. Jasmine is the queen of crafts. Well, yeah, like like elementary school level crafting. Like I, 
I love crafting and my mom was an art teacher and I would always ask her to do the crafts that she would do with her kids, like the little kids. And I genuinely love doing them still. Anyway, I have done that. And I started to think about it and I realized that I'm uncomfortable about painting rocks. And I wondered why. So I gave, why am I? Then I thought, what is that like? Oh, right. It's like picking up pine cones and spray painting them or whatever, putting them in a bowl. Well, at least those you you take home. Uh, The rocks you apparently leave out there where anybody could come across them and be depressed by them. My rocks, I like the rock I painted with my mom recently and my 12-year-old niece is sitting in my bedroom, like on a shelf or something. So, That's better. Yeah, but is it? Because the the thing is, I feel uncomfortable in this sort of like environmentalist way and also animal rights way because it's I don't feel like it's mine to take. And I guess I sort of regret that I painted a rock. And I wonder if I'm just being nutty. So what do you think? Well, I think you both like, like, I don't think that it really has a whole lot of impact in the world. I mean, I guess if everybody started painting rocks, it would be a problem, but I really doubt that's going to happen. It's more kind of symbolic, you know, even though it may not do any, there's plenty of rocks in the world that may not do any real harm. I think, you know, as our attitudes shift more and more towards the natural world and how precious it is and how, how likely it is that we're going to lose so much of it, that that we don't want to, you know, impose ourselves on it in any way, even if it's just a small way. Right. Yeah. And also I wonder like with pine cones, and I genuinely don't know the answer to this. I'm sure people will write in and tell me, but like maybe birds need them to make nests or something. And who knows about rocks? It's hard for me to imagine a bird using a pine cone unless it was a really big bird. But yeah, there might, there might well be some use for pine cones. I mean, animals make use of all sorts of things. So anyway, there, I, I like seeing pine cones and I'm sure the animals do too. Like just seeing them out there and doing their pine cone thing. Yeah. Just being a pine cone, being their best, living their best pine cone life. <laughs> so anyway, it's just some food for thought. Are, are we going to change from being animal rights activists to being pine cone activists? Well, that was my next big announcement is like, <laughs> we have a, a, a podcast starting called our pine cone house. <laughs> I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah. All right. So speaking of podcasts, let's talk about ours. As people are listening to this now, we have a flock and it's it's for our, our subscribers who give us either $10 a month or $100 a year or more. And there are different perks that come with that. And one of the perks is bonus content. And another perk is a one-on-one session with me to talk about your activism. And another perk is... An invitation to join our Flock Fridays, which are the first Friday of the month at four o'clock Eastern. And we bring former guests on. And we recently had Zoe and Shearston join us. Zoe and Shearston Rosenberg. Rosenberg. Yeah, sorry. I just feel like like Madonna or Cher. They're just like <laughs> Zoe and Shearston. <laughs> They're from Happy Hand Sanctuary, and Zoe is just an incredible activist in 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 the big sense as well. She's just doing incredible work. And so we're so inspired by her when we did the Flock Friday chatting with her. I don't understand how she's 20. And like, I don't understand how she's so friggin' smart and worldly. At, it just seems like she's been around for a lot longer than 20 years. And so we asked her about basically her, her theory of change because she is creating her own major at 
Berkeley, where she goes to school. And it's basically a theory of social change major that she's created for herself. And so I just wanted to play this little clip from the Flock Friday session that we recently had so that other people could think about what she's saying as well. So what is your theory about what it is that has to flip that switch that make people think that they have to do something about this? I could probably talk for hours about my theory of change, which I will not do right now, but maybe another time. My theory of change in a very short, compact way is nonviolent direct action. You know, there's more to it than just that. But I believe that we have to build a base community that should ideally be in person. So it would be, you know, local to different places that is tight knit and people working together very closely to fight for change, people who trust one another. That's really important in social movements. I believe that there needs to be a lot of different tactics. People need to be doing undercover investigations. People need to be getting the word out. People need to be doing civil disobedience. People need to be really doing everything because that's what a movement is. Everyone has a niche. Everyone has something to contribute when they come into a movement. Maybe what you're good at is public speaking. So you're going to be a public speaker. Maybe what you're good at is leading a march, organizing protests and being an organizer. And that's going to be your role in the movement. And of course, people can grow other skills as well. But I really think it takes everything. It takes people going after a target from all sides in as many ways as possible. I kind of touched on this before, but I really think that what ultimately will get more people into a movement, into fight for animals, is cycles of contention and repression. These are kind of trigger moments. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement existed before George Floyd was killed. That movement has existed for many years, but that trigger moment got thousands of people to pay attention and to get out into the streets. That's what pushed them to get out there. And I believe that someday there will be a trigger moment like that for animals. We won't necessarily have control over when that trigger moment happens or how it happens, but we have to be prepared as a movement to support that trigger moment. So we have to be prepared to have the infrastructure in place, the organizers in place to lead a movement successfully and to sustain it. Because imagine if the you know movement that came out of the killing of George Floyd, imagine if that was still around today. If that was still around today, we would be seeing so much more drastic systemic change against police brutality and racism in general. Unfortunately, those numbers have drastically dwindled, but what needs to happen is for a movement to win is that 3.5% or it could be a little less, but somewhere around that of the population has to sustain that level of contention for a long period of time. And that long period of time can't just be months. It has to be at least a year, potentially years of people out in the streets, physically with their bodies, taking action, thousands and thousands of people like we saw in response to George Floyd, but for years at a time. And that is what is going to completely create this drastic systemic change that we need to see for animals. It's not a one issue thing. It's not the kind of thing where we just need to change this one law and then animals are going to have rights. We need drastic change. And so we're going to need a huge movement over a long period of time to create the change that we need to see for animals. 
So definitely food for thought here. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's really great. She's such a thoughtful person. She's she's going to change everything. She and all of this young generation coming up, I'm so impressed with them all. Yeah, definitely. Uh, by the way, for those of you who are listening, I just want to let you know that we have a new Mighty Networks community, which is an app that you can get. And it will basically direct you to conversations that listeners and flock members are having. You can follow it either on your phone or your computer. I know most people like to follow things on their phones, but I just want to, I am not one of them. I'm always on my computer instead. So I enjoy following it on my computer. Well, we want you to join us there. So we will link to it in the show notes for this episode. There's a section of that that's just for the flock. Yes. But the main section of it is for everybody. That's right. So I did want people to know too that we are putting together a virtual launch party, which I'm so excited about, that is going to be kind of introducing this 2.0 of our community. And it's going to be held virtually on Sunday, February 26th, from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Again, that's Sunday, February 26th, 2023, from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And the way that you can RSVP and join our Mighty Networks is by going to ourhenhouse.mn.co. So it's MN stands for Mighty Networks and .co. So again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. And we would love for you to join us because we have a couple of really special guests, one of whom is comedian Mike Kaplan, who is just a dynamite human being and friggin' hilarious. And then the other one is Gene Bauer, another completely fabulous, fantastic human being who has created so much change for animals. So we hope to see you there. We want to see you there. Please RSVP, join us. There might be some other surprises as well. Just saying. I didn't know there were going to be other surprises. Surprise! What are they? There's going to be, they're painted rocks. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that, let's get to the interview. Elan Abrel is a cultural anthropologist whose research and writing focus on human-animal interactions, environmental justice, and food politics. His book, Saving Animals, Multispecies Ecologies of Rescue and Care, an ethnography of animal sanctuaries, and winner of the 2022 Gregory Bateson Book Prize from the Society for Cultural Anthropology, examines how sanctuary caregivers respond to a range of ethical dilemmas and material constraints while attempting to meet the various and sometimes conflicting needs of rescued animals. Elan is an assistant professor of the practice in environmental studies, science in society, and integrative sciences at Wesleyan University. He is also the coordinator of Wesleyan's new animal studies minor. That is so cool. And he will be joining Marianne right after this. Socrates once said, the secret to change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. As you probably gathered from the opening quote, change is in the air. I've got big, gigantic, enormous, gargantuan news. Here at our hen house, we have been working behind the scenes for a while on a brand new community resource, and we couldn't be more thrilled to announce that it is now live. The Our Hen House community is a new online platform that will enable vegans and activists to connect with one another on our own dedicated social network. 
No more random social media ads, spam comments telling you about a miracle cure, or worry about your data being used in nefarious ways. Just an amazing community of change makers at your fingertips. We're really looking forward to having you by our side to grow this amazing networking platform into a one-of-a-kind movement resource that we truly believe will be an epic tool in our work to change the world for animals. Head on over to our henhouse.mn.co to join us. Again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. We can't wait to connect with you. We'll see you there. Welcome to our hen house, Elan. Thank you. I've been wanting to interview for you for a long time because you have written a book about what is, I think, my favorite subject and so many people's favorite subjects, and that is sanctuary. Sanctuaries are so important to people in this movement. But it's not a super academic book. I mean, it's accessible to regular people, but it is an academic book. And you write it from your perspective as a cultural anthropologist. And I just thought I would start off by asking you, so what is a cultural anthropologist? Oh, great question. A cultural anthropologist is, um, people might associate it more with sociology than what a lot of people think anthropology is. But it's essentially anthropologists who study the different aspects and dimensions of material and immaterial culture too. Everything from music to art to folklore to culinary practices to how people organize themselves and feed themselves and all everything in between. Okay, cool. So about life on earth by humans. Yeah. And, and <laughs> Big topic. Add, yeah, yeah, exactly. And how humans make meaning of that. So Okay. Well, that seems like a really important aspect of how we think about sanctuaries, because there is a lot of questions about how we make meaning of them. And it's really obvious from your book that you care a lot about animals. You make that care right from the start. And that has been a major motivation for you in deciding what to study. But why did you focus on sanctuaries specifically? There is a longer version how I got to this, but I was bouncing around to different projects in grad school and came to an epiphany that I would be a lot happier if I were doing a project on animals rather than sort of treating my interest in animals as like a private life thing and, and not a professional thing. And so when I came to that conclusion, I immediately thought about the different ways in which animals are treated horrifically by humans in human society. And and the need to further expose that and talk about it. And books, you know, since I first started thinking about this and come out like every 12 seconds that really get into the what's going on behind the scenes in like animal agriculture. But I knew that I couldn't personally handle being in a setting where I was going to be around violence or mistreatment of animals on a regular basis. And at the same time, I was sort of wondering about this idea about what motivates people to really care for animals. I feel like the question is often like, well, what can we do to convince people to care more about animals or change the way that they're behaving? But I thought that there hadn't been much real discussion or, or investigation of what were the experiences of people who already care about animals. And I thought maybe the best place to go and look at that with sanctuaries where people who work at sanctuaries are, are literally giving every hour of their waking day to care for animals who've been rescued from all kinds of horrible situations. So that was the catalyst for looking at that as an area to investigate. But then once I ended up doing the fieldwork and getting to the sanctuaries, I realized that there are all other kinds of interesting things to explore and look at and ask questions about beyond that that one initial question. Yeah, as so often is the case, it, everything turns out 
to be so much more complicated and interesting than you think at first. But I love that it started with that because that really, that's a really excellent point. We spend so much time thinking about how to convince other people to think like us. And, you know, I mean, I know a lot of vegans. They're not necessarily better than everybody else. <laughs> maybe, if, maybe one or two of them, but most of them are pretty regular. Uh, and there are many, many people who don't seem to care about animals at all, who are wonderful, wonderful human beings in so many ways. So what is this thing? What is it that we get and they don't get? Of course, I would put it like that. They probably wouldn't. Um, that is a really interesting motivation. And I re really want to get into the questions of answering your big question of what makes people care about animals, but also the many smaller questions that you uncovered in doing this research. But first, so how did you start? How did you pick the sanctuaries you studied? And, and also, how did you determine if they were legit? Because we all know there are sanctuaries and then there are quote unquote sanctuaries. Yeah, well, I was doing all this as a graduate student in grad school when I did the research. And I started out by breaking it up into, I mean, this, this is my imposed conceptual framework, but I'm not sure that there are a lot of better ways to do it, which is looking at the different kinds of sanctuaries and how it seemed to me that they were responding to different ways in which we use animals. I suppose that there's ways in which sanctuaries could be organized completely differently, but we know that there are, and anybody who's familiar with sanctuaries knows that there are sanctuaries that rescue formerly farmed animals. And then there are sanctuaries that deal with captive wildlife or sometimes called exotic animals. And then there's the companion animal sphere, which is often handled much more through shelters, although there are companion animal sanctuaries as well. And so there's some additional spaces there that sanctuaries have addressed, like specifically primates who are used in laboratory research and, and things like that. But it seemed to me these were sort of the three basic general categories. And in designing the project, I knew I wanted to do a sort of comparative analysis and get a broad perspective on the different ways that people approach the acts of rescuing and saving and then caring for animals. So I tried to find a place for each one of those categories, companion animal, captive wildlife, and farmed animal sanctuaries. I think it's generally not hard to find legitimate farmed animal sanctuaries, especially if you're familiar with the movement at all and, and, you, and you've maybe gone and volunteered in places. All the good ones have built up really good reputations for themselves over the years. And so I didn't think that was particularly difficult. When I started out doing the captive animal sanctuary, I write about it a little bit in the book, but it, it was one of those ones that you just mentioned is not a legitimate sanctuary. And I don't think it was for bad intention reasons. I think it was for um, a lack of resources and, and general sort of competence in running the, the facility. But I saw animals that were pretty unhappy at this small sanctuary in Florida, and I realized really quickly that this was going to be a bad case study if, if this was the representative case of what I was going to talk about as captive wildlife sanctuaries. So I actually looked at the Global Federation of, of Animal Sanctuaries, GFAS, which is the sort of most respected accredited organization for sanctuaries. And it's a voluntary process. Sanctuaries don't have to get accredited through there, but it is a respected organization that has standards for what at the bare minimum sort of of what sanctuaries should should do to properly care for animals. And I found one that was already accredited by them. And it happened to be one that was near some good family friends so I could stay with them while I was doing the research. So I had to get permission at the time because I had a National Science Foundation grant to do the research. And I had to ask if I could change my locations from what I'd put in the grant proposal. And um, if you read the book, you know that it's sanctuaries in Hawaii. And the grant operator at the time was like, yes, you could switch. 
poor you, you have to go to Hawaii now. (laughs) I was thinking the exact same thing. It's a really tough assignment. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. And then, and then the other, the third set I did was a companion animal rescue organization in Texas. And I stumbled upon that somewhat through just where I was in life. I was living in the area at the time and had started volunteering with them before I even thought of the project. So I just stuck with that as a site. So these, I'm, when you start thinking about it, as you do in the book and explaining, these sanctuaries, they're all sort of fundamentally the same, but they kind of serve very different purposes. Can you just go into that a little bit, how how much they differ? Yeah. I mean, so like you said, they definitely differ in sort of the purposes that they're serving. So farmed animals are domesticated species almost always, which means that they're, for the most part, not going to individuals of those species are not going to be able to do well just living in the wild. And there aren't really a lot of wild spaces in in the United States where they could, even if they could survive on their own, be sort of left alone. And so when animals are rescued from farming situations, it's almost by necessity they have to still be in captivity. And so farmed animal sanctuaries are focused on providing lifelong care for the animals that they rescue and giving them the best lives possible sort of within that captive space. It's similarly true for captive wildlife. There are organizations that do wildlife rehabilitation and reintroduce animals, but a lot of animals that are ending up in these kind of sanctuaries, like if anybody's seen Tiger King, the tigers in Carol Baskin Sanctuary, not not Joe Exotics, um, are not going to be able to be released into the wild ever. And so they also need to live in captivity, and it's the same idea, but there are many different needs that, that captive wildlife might have that farmed animals aren't going to have. Like farmed animals are almost, as far as I can think of in the moment, all capable of living on a on an herbivore diet. There are carnivores in captive wildlife sanctuaries that necessarily must eat meat. And so there are these sort of issues that arise around the choices you make ethically about how to care for animals that sometimes might involve harm to other animals. And then companion animal rescue, as most people know, is largely more in a shelter model where animals are coming in and hopefully living there temporarily until they can be adopted by a family or a home and, and go live with a human somewhere on their own. Although animals do end up never getting adopted sometimes for various reasons. And there are places that that care for some animals that can't ever be adopted, maybe because of behavioral issues, they're not going to be safe. They were maybe abused when they were younger, trained to be fighting dogs, for example, or something. And so they're going to be better off living in a sanctuary setting. But so the diff- there's the difference in which kind of animals are being cared for, which is partly shaped by the way that we as humans treat different kinds of animals. But then there's also a lot of differences in the perspectives of the people about animals who end up working in different institutions. So I, going into it, assumed that everybody I met was going to be you know, vegetarian or vegan, really, at least in the animal welfare, if not animal rights. And I realized that it was actually a really broad spectrum of attitudes and perspectives of everybody I met cared about the animals that they were working with at the institutions they were at. But outside of those institutions, they might have totally different attitudes about eating meat or, well, I want to quote unquote, pest control or, or yeah. predator control or how to treat invasive species. And so I was definitely struck by that early on to realize that there were what a lot of us vegans might call cognitive dissonance in the way that people were caring for some animals and then going off and having a fundraiser at the burger place for the shelter or whatever. And so that was another way in which they really differed. Yeah, it has always been 
such a fascinating aspect of all of this for me that so many people who who devote their lives to companion animals like really are so much better than I am in every possible way like just don't go into the broader picture you would think that would be our logical next step of the next people who would kind of wake up to the full picture but you know I I don't understand people at all, so so I shouldn't be in charge of figuring out next steps. A lot of the things that you mentioned about how these sanctuaries differ involves death. And as you point out in the book, sanctuaries involve enormous amounts of death of various kinds. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Um, You mentioned that people aren't vegan, the animals aren't vegan um, uh, necessarily. So how does that all play out? And what are some of the various attitudes towards it? Yeah, so I'll start with farmed animal sanctuaries again, because that was the one space where it really kind of conformed to my expectations. Everybody I met was a vegan, or, or at least while they were working at the sanctuary, embraced veganism. And in those spaces, you don't have to kill animals or feed animals meat in order to keep the other animals alive. Right. None of those animals are carnivorous in any way. Right. And so in that space, death really came up in relation to the health and suffering of animals. So as probably a lot of listeners know, industrially farmed animals are almost all killed at what, you know, in humans would be the equivalent of like toddlers or at the most early adolescence. They are killed very early in what would be a much longer lifespan. And at the farm sanctuary, they started figuring out early on when sanctuaries first started um, popping up with well, the original farm sanctuary in the early 80s, is that there's this whole range of health problems that geriatric farmed animals can get that there wasn't a lot of veterinary knowledge about or techniques for treating or necessarily even like, you know, medications or veterinary technology for addressing. And so sanctuaries still are doing this, but in the early period, especially collaborated with like vet schools, for example, to, the, to sort of develop ways to treat these issues as they came up. But because industrialized agricultural animals are not just treated very badly in the conditions that they're in, but they're also selectively bred over many decades to maximize the most flesh production or the most milk production or the most egg production, this introduces its own range of health problems for animals. So this is a very long way of saying that they end up often having conditions that cause pain and suffering. And so there's a decision that needs to be made at certain points at sanctuaries sometimes for animals, about if the quality of life is so bad that maybe the kindest thing to do for them or the best thing to do for them would be to euthanize them. And I'm using euthanize, euthanize in the literal sense of, you know, if you break down the word, it means sweet death. And we talk about using it to help somebody who cannot live any longer a happy life, that they're suffering too much to be able to enjoy life anymore. Not in the sense that it's often used to talk about like killing companion animals, for example, right. that are, are just, there's no space for them. Yeah. The use of the word euthanasia is a pet peeve of mine. And I was very glad yeah. to see it was of yours as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it means something. It's a word. It means something. And we should use it in that sense, not to make ourselves feel better about I, killing animals who are inconvenient. I totally agree. And I think that's the way that death comes up the most at farmed animal sanctuaries is, is a very difficult moment of people, humans who have very close relationships with the animal people that they've been caring for, having to make these decisions, much like we as humans might have to do for loved ones if we had a society that was generally a lot more open to being able to offer euthanasia to humans as well. But I think anybody who's had 
a long a, a relationship with the companion animal that they live with you have the companion animal's entire life might have had to confront this same kind of decision-making process at a certain point where you are having to decide whether or not you might need to euthanize a loved one. So as I, I've sort of mentioned already in captive wildlife sanctuaries, there are carnivores. And so either those sanctuaries are buying food that's already coming from, you know, like the pet food industry, which is another part of industrialized animal agriculture, or there, as I saw at the sanctuary where I was, sometimes killing animals there to feed to other animals. So the sanctuary I was at would feed mice and baby chicks to raptors. And they would kill them quickly. They wouldn't feed them live to the raptors so that they would not they would suffer as little as possible. But it was still a decision that, that some animals were going to die for other animals, essentially. And then there's also the issue of predators that can come into a sanctuary. So actually, this can happen at farmed animal sanctuaries as well. You know, bears can come in, weasels can come in, rats can come in and kill animals. And so that's another way that, that death can sort of get surprise you in a sanctuary. And so farm sanctuaries have to, as much as possible, build, in, build structures that can keep out predators. But the captive wildlife sanctuary I was at, for example, chose to kill predators, which is an, another example of the, the difference between places and different attitudes about animals. And I, I realized that part of the way that that decision-making process is done for people is that there are patients of the sanctuary's care, and then there are animals that are excluded from that. And, and that's how the sort of what otherwise I think be a contradiction for a lot of people is resolved is that like, well, these uh, mongoose, for example, is going to get killed to prevent the mongoose from killing all of the waterfowl that live in a particular area of the sanctuary at the captive wildlife facility where I did research. And then, like, as we've also kind of gestured to in companion animal rescue, there is a lot of facilities, open admission shelters that do kill a certain amount of animals that come in to make space for other animals. Maybe they aren't as adoptable, so they're concerned that they will be taking up space longer, and so they make the decision to kill them shortly after they come in, or they're at the facility for a certain amount of time, and it seems like they aren't going to be adopted, and so maybe it's the decision about how to, to kill the animals to make space is made differently in different places. And I don't want to speak too much for those places because I didn't do research at a yeah. you, you were at a, you were at a no-kill shelter, uh, a quote-unquote no-kill shelter. Exactly. But even in that space, as I write about a little bit, there are occasionally animals who are assumed to be unadoptable because they've been there for months, because they might have aggression issues in certain contexts that make people afraid that they would hurt a person that adopted them. And so they're trying to work with them, help them get rid of some of those reactions so that they can be safer to be adopted. But if a dog, for example, bites somebody a couple times, they might start considering the possibility that it's a situation in which he or she cannot be adopted ever. And that and the, yeah. the alternative to killing in that situation is kind of living in a shelter space forever, which is not designed for companion animals to live in forever. So I think different places weigh those decisions differently, but that's sometimes. Yeah. The, and decided. no matter how we weigh these decisions, I think it's it's important for all of us to respect the fact that they're very hard decisions. And some people take them lightly, and that's wrong, but a lot of people take them very seriously, but still end up killing, not necessarily euthanizing, but killing. But it doesn't mean 
that should be the subject of a lot of attacks, which it so often is. They, I, it, before we started talking on this interview, we were talking about how uh, too often what we do in this movement is criticize each other rather than coming up with good ideas on how to handle things in so many different contexts. And yeah, these are tough, tough, sanctuaries have tough, tough questions. And uh, do you think that ultimately that sanctuaries can give animals good lives? Is it worth it? Oh, I do. Absolutely, yes. I think that captivity for non-human animals is always going to put limits on the possibilities of happiness or thriving that would exist in an ideal world in which those animals would not have to interact with humans at all if they didn't want to, and they could make their own choices. But I think that the many sanctuaries do a fantastic job of giving very good lives to animals that otherwise would have had much worse lives. And I think, although we always have to be careful about projecting onto animals when we try to understand what their interests or needs are, I think it's probably a safe assumption that most animals would prefer to live a pretty good life than to be killed because they can't have the perfect life. Yeah, I agree. Another function of sanctuaries or some sanctuaries, not all sanctuaries, is their visitor programs, particularly in farm animal sanctuaries. People do differ on whether there should be visitor programs, whether they're a good idea. Some people think of these animals as refugees who should be left alone. Where do you come down on that? I'm actually not sure where I come down on that. It's an issue that I write a lot about in the book. And I get well, I guess where I come down on that is that I respect the choices that different sanctuaries make because I, I see both sides of the argument, so to speak. It makes a lot of sense to me to see a sanctuary as a space that it belongs to the animals. It is like their home, for lack of a better word. It's like a town or a community. It's a community, a multi-species community where all the animals there live, and it's theirs. And so there's a lot of sense to the idea that you should decide who comes into your community and who doesn't. And if somebody else is deciding that they're going to turn your community into like a sort of tourist spot, for example, and you don't want that, then it is a violation of agency in a certain way. It is taking away your ability to have the privacy that you might want. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to say, okay, the sanctuary space is just for the animals, not for humans to come in and, and look and learn. On the other hand, sanctuaries are responding to just one of the most horrific systems of violence and exploitation humans have ever, probably the most horrific one that humans have devised in history, which is industrial animal agriculture, and the use of, well, the industrial animal complex, the use of animals in lab testing and, and other ways as well. And I think that sanctuaries have a really important function culturally, so this is my anthropology perspective coming in, in teaching others or modeling for others how we can think about and relate to animals differently. So I see the value in doing tours if they're done in a certain way, where humans can come and actually learn from the space and the animals might have the opportunity to still avoid humans if they want to. So it's not, you know, maybe as ideal as a situation where humans are just absent other than the caregivers, but it doesn't have to be done in a way that is like a petting zoo, for example, which yeah. to, to be clear that all the farm sanctuaries I've been to do not do tours like a petting zoo. Although I think that people struggle with how to make those kind of interactions impactful too, because you, you, to deal with the possibility that people coming might be seeing it as essentially just a trip to the petting zoo and not particularly interested in learning everything else that, that is a part of the tour. And hopefully, you know, if the tours are designed in a way that can be really impactful. Even people like that will come away from it learning something 
but I think it's those are like a lot of the considerations that I think sanctuaries ask themselves in designing tours. Yeah, you lay that out really well because I, you know, I don't know where I come down on it either. I guess a lot of the questions that sanctuaries are dealing with have to be taken in the context of that the world we live in is horrifying and, and we're trying to deal with that. It's not like creating an ideal for these animals in this world is, is, is difficult because the world is so far from ideal. You know, one of the questions that um, animal advocates get asked a lot or vegans get asked a lot is what would we do with all the animals if everybody went vegan? And, you know, obviously if everybody went vegan at the same moment, this would be an issue. Uh, the chances of that happening are probably not so high that we really should torture ourselves trying to figure out the answer. But is the goal of the sanctuary movement to lay out how we could live together with animals in a benign way? Or is it just to be no longer needed? Would it be best if there were no more sanctuaries because we're just not eating the animals and we're not overbreeding the animals and we're not exploiting uh, exotic animals? They're all living in the wild. Is that the idealistic goal of the sanctuary movement? Or is it to always have these animals there for us to communicate with? I think the like sort of logical endpoint of the sanctuary philosophy would be a world in which sanctuaries no longer existed. And there was no need for them. But what that means for humans' relationships with animals would be really different depending on the species and which animals we're talking about. So it wouldn't necessarily mean that we would never have any contact with them again. But I do think that the space of sanctuary is one that exists because it's a response to a world that is fundamentally not safe for animals and welcoming to animals. And so if the goal were to keep sanctuaries forever, then it would sort of be more of like a refugee camp model where it's like these problems are always going to be there and we're always going to have spaces to help them. That might be the reality that we live in, at least for our lifetimes. But I think it's not the end goal. But that question of like what would happen to the animals, I always find to be kind of like an obnoxious red herring question. Because yeah. as you, as you pointed yeah. out, like we're not all going to go vegan tomorrow. But um, And if, if we, we did, the world would be such an amazingly wonderful place that we'd right. figure it out. We would figure it out. And humans make billions of animals a year in order to kill them. So if we suddenly stopped killing them, we presumably would also stop forcibly breeding them. And all of these other issues would sort of start to resolve themselves over time. Yeah. So. yeah. No, it's such a favorite. And they it's always such a gotcha question. Like they figured, they figured out the big problem with the animal rights movement. Yeah. Really? The the other one is the idea that, like, I'm afraid that the cows and chickens are going to go extinct. But, like, (laughs) animal agriculture is driving the extinction crisis. If you're worried about extinction, you should want to have animal agriculture. Yeah. And, like, these deformed animals, the horror that they should go extinct, the the way they have completely deformed these animals through their crazy breeding practices. All right, let's talk a little bit about the people, um, because we've been talking about the animals. And as anyone who has ever cared for an animal in any way knows, it's a lot of work to do it even in a remotely decent way. Like, for an animal, it's just a huge job. Working at a sanctuary must just be that multiplied by a gazillion. So many people want to do it. What is it that drives people in that direction? That's funny because that would that was my initial question, and I don't know that I really got I got an answer. <laughs> I mean, I think that interact having relationships with animals is, I think, a catalyst for a lot of people who decide that they want to do it. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know if there's sort of a a predisposition that makes somebody more inclined to empathy and openness than other people. But I do think a common thread for people who decide 
to either become full-time caregivers and work for salaries that are not great and not because the sanctuaries are trying to exploit anybody, but just because they have limited resources and you can't necessarily afford to pay somebody um, really awesome living wage. But I've met a lot of caregivers who have just decided, oh, I, I wanted to volunteer. And so I went in with, I was an intern and I fell in love with this whole thing and I want to do it. And there's people who, especially around farmed animals, I think maybe just like the agricultural, the rural lifestyle to some extent, doing the kind of work that comes with being out there and, and being with the animals. Uh, it is pretty amazing in my experience to be able to go into like a field of goats or sheep and have a bunch come over and want to say hi and check you out. And it's something that I could imagine being very happy doing my whole life. The animal interaction part, the work itself is tremendously difficult. Yeah. And I would advise people, you know, like I have a whole chapter about the sanctuary conference and learning how to do it. And I would advise people to not do it unless you know for a fact that you can give that much time, that you can get the resources to take care of the animals you take in, and that you might never really do much else outside of that. I mean, I have friends who, uh, when a companion animal passes away, decide they're going to wait a while before adopting another one so that they can do a little traveling, which is really hard to do when you need to find somebody to take care of your companion animal. Starting the sanctuary is that times a million years. I'm sure just always going to be there caring for animals. But yeah, I think that beyond that sort of personal desire to help and interact with animals, a lot of people, I think, who are doing the sanctuary work are aware on, on some level to varying degrees that they are showing a way to respond to this world that is seems sometimes just built to like kill animals and hurt animals, that there is a different way that we could structure things. And I think, you know, it can be really depressing when you think about how hard it is to change the world. And I think that for some people doing this kind of work is, is, living an alternative in a sense. And so that can be like really rewarding and fulfilling too. You know, you're not thinking that you're necessarily changing the entire structure of what we do with animals, but you are getting to do the opposite on a daily basis and really live that. And I think that that's meaningful to people as well. Yeah, I I love that. Because when I asked that question before about our vision of how the world should be and should sanctuaries even exist or should we not be doing any of these things to animals? And that's always been very important to me. Like even though as you said, it's not going to happen in our lifetime, probably. Never like to say definitely, but mm-hmm. chances are. <laughs> and it may never happen. I mean, humans are who humans are. Right. But I still think it's important to have a vision. And that's really important to me to like have this idea of what it would be like if we were to succeed. I just need that light at the end of the tunnel. But what you're saying is that for some people, it's not so much an idea. It's, it's actually people doing the sanctuary work. They want to live that reality, even if it's only in their small microcosm of a world. And I think that's a very beautiful idea. And I always used to feel when I first got involved with animals, which was a really long time ago, I would go to Farm Sanctuary and it just felt like that was the only sanctuary I knew of. And it it just felt like hallowed ground. I, it was yeah. this safe space in the world where people understood why I felt this way. And I didn't have to think about it. It, it. The ground itself becomes somehow different because of of the attitudes towards animals that the people hold who are there. So it is, there's something almost spiritual about it. And I, I don't get spiritual. So I, don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I got off on a spiritual tangent there. So I guess there is a little bit of that. All right. I wanted to ask you 
I, I want to get to another topic because we, we want to talk a little bit about effective altruism and its relationship to sanctuaries and the craziness that's going on right now. But before we did, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about government. And this, I guess, applies mostly about dogs and cats. And I feel that there has been a change in the past 50 years or so that government has actually has, in some places, not everywhere, government actually has some responsibility towards animals. It's kind of a new idea that government takes on the responsibility of not just dealing with these animals and getting rid of them and then, you know, not being cruel to them, there's that, but if actually we need to build a shelter to find these animals' homes, it's actually sort of a responsibility. Do you, in your ideal world, would caring for animals be a governmental function? Is that, is that a social, political, where this should be? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. Yes, I think so. But in my ideal world, government would do that for humans in a way that it doesn't either. Well, true. But, yes. That would be a first step. Yeah. Um, but definitely, I mean, yeah, to go back to your question about the sort of ideal world, like I, I do think realistically that it's much more likely that we would get to a world in which we are learning to coexist with animals that we actually live with and are around us a lot then we would be in a world where humans are somehow separate from and, and never interact with other animals. And I think that in a situation like that, if you were sort of to imagine um, growing a sanctuary space to an entire, expanding the boundaries of how we care and think about animals in the sanctuary space to an entire city, the government would have to play a role in, in helping out with those things. And, um, you know, whether that's providing shelter and care for unhoused animals that need it because they're domesticated species that they can't live well on their own outdoors or creating spaces that are just more hospitable and safer for animals like park designs that create spaces for wildlife to thrive rather than treating them as, as sort of pests or whatever. Right. Um, and I think sometimes when we talk about, I mean, obviously we do have national parks and environmental laws that can benefit animals. But when they're spoken about from a legal point of view, they're often not focused on saving animals other than saving species so that people will still have species to view. You know, there there hasn't been that shift so much that it, they should actually be serving animals. But I wonder if that shift is occurring. And I would like to, I would certainly like to see it occur that the government doesn't have a duty to preserve animals so that people can enjoy them, but actually has a duty to animals themselves. Yeah, right. You know, I mentioned that we wanted to get to effective altruism because I wanted to talk about the book that's coming out that you have a chapter in. We'll get to that in a second. But whatever, I mean, before I even knew about that or thought about that, I wanted to talk about effective altruism because I think it's such an important question in the sanctuary space because the proponents of effective altruism, which has become the big money within the animal rights movement, have in the past, and maybe still, this is still going on, I would like you to let me know, disdained sanctuaries yeah, as right. kind of a waste of money, like a, with the idea that all they do is save a few animals and we have to save billions. But mm -hmm. there are a lot, that's a much more complicated question than that, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I address this in the book too. When I first started doing my field work, I remember a report or something came out from animal charity evaluators, which is sort of follows an effective altruist approach and saying exactly that, that money would be better off being given to. I think at the time, everybody was saying that all the money should be going into vegan advocacy and because you want to change the system. And so if you can change the system, you have to get consumers to stop doing what they're doing and stop demanding these products. And sanctuaries aren't 
doing that because they're they're rescuing from the perspective of statistics insignificant amount of animals out of billions killed every year they're rescuing a tiny tiny percent fraction of a percentage but i think that it's sort of asking the wrong question or it's assuming the wrong position from the outset which is if you're going to change what people are doing there these certain sort of hacks that can be done for a while it was it was only vegan advocacy and then it became well let's just develop alternative proteins to replace what they're eating and we'll do a switcheroo and then everybody will be not eating animal products anymore and the industry will go away but i think that to get a real change in how people think about animals it's going to require a lot more than that and i think that sanctuaries are doing that and i'm not saying that they're having a massive impact on society and how we think about animals now but i think that cultural change happens slowly and i think that you, it's something that is sort of impossible to quantify right now is what is the impact sanctuaries are having on the way people think about animals and what is the impact they're going to have long term but from talking to people who know about sanctuaries while i was doing the field work and from the conversations i've had since i wrote my dissertation and turned it into a book and I've talked to people about the book is that just the idea that there are spaces where people want to do this for animals really shifts the way that others see and think about animals from objects for satisfying your needs or desires to beings and subjects who are worthy of care and support and like we were just saying like even governmental support for their own right not because of what they can mean for humans and i think that there's this sort of invaluable dimension to what you could call experiments because they're so small but these sort of models of living differently and relating differently to animals that shouldn't be discounted as a waste of money or not you know sufficiently impacting the way that society is treating animals it might be the case that long term we find out that that those are the only kind of projects that were going to have a big impact and that all of the efforts to tweak capitalism to make it a little more humane were were just flashes in the pan i mean i hope that it's all successful but i don't think right. that it makes sense to discount one in favor of the other i totally hear you and it can be very frustrating when you come across anyone who thinks they have the answer to what has got to be the most complicated problem on the face of the earth. How do we turn this ship around? So yeah, I really appreciate your thoughts on that. Tell us a little bit about the book that, that you have a chapter in, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. So the book is called The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does, Critical Essays on Effective Altruism. And it's edited by Carol Adams, Alice Crary, and Lori Gruen. And it should be coming out from Oxford Press either at the end of January or, or I think I thought it was the end of January. It might be early in February. By the time this airs, it will already be out. Yeah. And it's sort of wild timing because of all this stuff that's been in the news about effective altruism and, and the Samuel Bankman-Fried crypto scam and things. And he was you know, ostensibly putting a lot of that money into sort of effective altruist causes, or at least he was trying to grow it to do that. But what the book does is it, it, it has a bunch of different chapters from different authors looking at critiquing this problem that we were just talking about with, with one group of people or individuals sort of positioning themselves as the experts on the most efficient use of resources to address problems and especially the, the problems that can raise when the expertise is is dubious or the data that it's ostensibly drawing on doesn't really exist very much or oh so there's a lot of critiques of different aspects 
the chapter I have is sort of specifically looking at the alternative protein industry and how there was this shift, I think, from an insistence that all the money should be going into vegan advocacy to, oh, looks like not vegan advocacy isn't working. <laughs> We're not really growing the number of vegans that much. Maybe what we really need to do is just take the decision out of people's hands and swap out what they're eating with cultured meat or what are they calling it now, cultivated meat or sort of plant-based alternatives to animal products. And I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing that stuff as unimportant or I think it might be necessary component of any kind of shift. So I, I do think that alternative protein, let's say as a technology is important to all of this. But what started happening in the philanthropy space is that effective altruism, these ideas were influenced through like animal charity evaluators, for example, were deciding where most of the money was going. And so they were saying, these are the causes to put it into, this is where it should go. And a lot of that suddenly became, well, let's invest in the development of alternative proteins. But then a report came, a couple, well, a big report came out, I forget, now it's like maybe two years ago or a year ago, that we're showing that it's very unlikely that cultured meat will be competitive in the market with conventional meat sooner than 10 years, probably longer. In the, the chapter I wrote, I was just sort of looking at the fact that if one of the goals of getting rid of animal agriculture is its impact on climate change and the environment and global warming, those 10 years are not 10 years that we really have to spare. And so maybe True. insisting that we put all of that money in this one basket for this technology that's not going to deliver until it might be too late for it to make the difference we want it to make isn't a very good strategic idea. And maybe some of that money should have been going into other efforts to disrupt or counter industrial animal agriculture. And I don't even know what all of those might have been because I think that there was this sort of monopolization of strategy through this particular perspective. So that's the thing that I look at and critique, but the other people who wrote chapters have a lot of different aspects that they look at. Sounds sounds fascinating. And I do just want to point out, as I do all the time, that Jasmine and I gave a talk on effective altruism so long ago, With all, along with, we, we were invited onto this panel at NYU, and the other panelists were like the John Bachman, was that his name, who was in charge of animal charity evaluators, and Peter Singer. So we got to debate Peter Singer's. <laughs> I had never heard of infective altruism at this point, but we did point out some of the things that are being said these days, but more what we were talking about, which of course, because it is, or one of the things we were talking about, which is our uh, our thing, is the importance of media and the arts and other yeah. ways of persuading people, which seem to be totally disdained and continues to be pretty disdained by effective altruism. So I hope that there is a, some thought given within those hallowed halls that seem to be very, very sincere in wanting to change the world for animals, but are controlling a lot of the money. And of course, people get to do with their money what they want to do with their money. But I hope there's a little bit broader thinking about what, how we're going to turn the ship around because there are many, many aspects to it. So that is very exciting that that book is already out. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that on our bonus segment um, because it's such an interesting topic. But before we do, just remind us of the, the book that we've been talking about most of the time during this interview, which I think came out in 2021, right? Which That's seems right. so long ago now. But really yeah. wasn't. Yeah, it was uh, everybody who came out with anything during those, that period of the pandemic just sort of <laughs> had, had to be like, oh, this is not what I imagined it would be like to have a book come out. <laughs> but yeah, no, my book is called Saving Animals, Multi-Species Ecologies of Rescue and Care from the University of Minnesota Press. Yes, it came out in May 2021, I think. 
Fascinating. And I highly recommend it. And thank you so much for joining us today, Alon. It's really been interesting. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from one of our favorite commentators. That's Hannah Thompson Weeman, who of course writes the Animal Ag Watch column on Meeting Place and is also the new president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance. And this is what she has to say. And it's kind of really cool news. New activist group has eyes on investors. And she starts out by pointing out that among the Animal Agriculture Alliance's most requested resources, they keep resources for their members, are our group profiles, which are one-page overviews of activist organizations working against animal agriculture and meat consumption in one way or another. Creating and updating these profiles could be a full-time job in and of itself, as we have more than 200 groups on our radar and get questions about new ones at least weekly. You know, that kind of warms my heart. It really does. Makes me feel good. I'd love to see those profiles. All right. So I kind of heard of this development, but I didn't know as much about it. So thank you, Hannah, for informing me. She's talking about the Accountability Board, which is this new organization that uh, I heard about, and according to Hannah, the group's purpose is to, quote, track companies' environmental, social, and governance performance, actively engaging to increase transparency and progress. You know, that's the kind of language that just kind of makes me cross my eyes, like, okay, what? And she points out that it doesn't include any mention of animal welfare, except that it says how we produce and consume food intersects with so many ESG issues significantly impacting, for example, our environment, global animal populations, and human health. That does seem to kind of mention animal welfare. But anyway, I, I guess they don't make a big deal of the fact that animals are are central to their purpose, but she thinks they are because here's what uh, earned Tab, as she calls it, a spot on our monitoring list. Its CEO is Josh Balk, who previously worked as vice president of farm animal protection at the Humane Society of the United States. And of course, Josh has been involved in this movement for a very long time. And and interesting that he, he, I mean, I had heard that he was starting this organization, but now I know a little more about what they're going to do because, because uh, she points out that they're going to be similar to the UK's Farm Animal Investment Risk and Return Initiative, which, or FAIR as it's called, what they do is go to investors Big, big investors. They they represent trillions. The investors they're involved with represent trillions of dollars. And they position animal agriculture using messaging about animal welfare, antibiotic use, and the supposed pandemic potential of large-scale farms. In other words, they go to these huge investors who have huge money and talk about the unbelievable risks involved in, in putting your money into animal agriculture and that they have been really successful and i'm excited to hear that this is going this new organization is going to be doing a similar 
thing. And she points out that that there's been a lot of targeting investors and mounting pressure on brands to acquiesce to their demands. She points out right now she considers the biggest one pushing for companies to adopt the, quote, better chicken commitment, which I'm sure is not that much better. You know, let's face it. Or to meet deadlines for previous commitments made on sow housing or laying hen housing. How dare they? How dare they pressure companies to meet deadlines that they already committed to? I'll be saying a little bit more about that with our next article. But I'll just uh, read her conclusion here. Publicly traded companies should take note of this new organization and prepare for additional investor interest in how animals are raised and processed for food. Very, very good news. Thank you, Hannah. All right. So our second uh, our second article, which is actually from our friends at Sentient Media, really keys into that. And here's the title. 21 brands fail to keep cage-free promises. Apparently, this is a big deal, pressuring companies to uh, actually uphold the commitments that they previously made has become a pretty important part of the process of these organizations who are, are dealing with these companies. It starts out almost two dozen major food retailers pledging to switch to cage-free eggs in their supply chains have failed to meet commitments or offer transparency regarding their progress. Gee, I wonder why they would not be offering transparency. Do you think it's because they also failed? A new report released today from the animal advocacy group, the Humane League, warns. Of course, the Humane League has been, you know, one of the most prominent groups uh, involved in this getting cage-free pledges. And, you know, there's always been some question as to how enforceable they were ever going to be. I, you know, they were pledges. They weren't contracts. They weren't laws. They just said they would do it. Apparently, they're not doing it, or a lot of them aren't. Among the, the brands that they're particularly concerned about are Wendy's, Wawa, Einstein Brothers Bagels, uh, Omni Hotels and Resorts, Intercontinental Hotels Group, and American Food and Vending. And uh, the article also points out that nearly all major food companies in the U.S. have committed to phasing battery cages out of their supply chain by 2025. I was not aware that it was that it was that big. And we're always complaining, rightfully, I think, that asking them just to get battery cages out of their supply chain is just such a, you know, cage-free housing is just so awful that why can't we ask for more? But they're not even willing to do that or able, like willing or able to do that. You know, they said they would. Now they're saying, eh, never mind. Wendy's is particularly telling. At the point where they announced in 2016 that they would go cage-free eggs, they had 400 U.S. and Canada locations serving breakfast. Well, they decided to, that breakfast was a good deal for them. And so now they have 5,800 locations serving breakfast. And they said, oh, never mind about the cage-free. According to the company, it currently sources only around 6% of its eggs from cage-free birds. So, uh, you know... You can't just you can't just say you'll do it and then say oh but now it's too hard. They they were sued uh, by Food Animal Concerns Trust, but apparently the the only way that you know it's the problem with consumer protection litigation it doesn't get you that much. Uh, the suit was resolved last year. The article says when Wendy's agreed to remove or amend the animal welfare statements it had made on its website. Well, you know, like they're removing the lie from their website. That's all that they got for their litigation. Very sad. Other restaurants are simply failing to report at all. Border, Hy-Vee, uh, they're among the places that said, you know, never mind. <laughs> We're not telling you. And this is a quote from Marcus Rust, who is the CEO of the second largest egg producer in the country, Roseacre Farms. What we producers failed to realize early on was that the people funding all the animal rights activist groups, they were our customers. 
at the end of the day, we have to listen to our customers. Well, maybe the restaurants should start listening to to the CEO of the egg producer. I don't know, because it doesn't sound like they care that much about their customers. Wawa takes the stance. This is a good one. Wawa takes the stance that cage-free housing is not right for all hens in situations, writing that many factors, including the breed of hen and the approach the supplier takes to transition from conventional to cage-free, should be considered. The breed of hen, is he actually claiming that there are breeds of hens that prefer to be in cages? Unbelievable. These people are unbelievable. All right. This is uh, another, another article from Meeting Place. And really showing some serious anxieties. And, you know, really makes me believe that there are a lot of people who work to support the meat industry who who don't really know what's going on and who close their eyes to what how awful it is and just put their heads in the sand. Uh, rather than saying to themselves, this is okay, they say, eh, I don't know, it's probably, I'm sure, that, I'm sure everything's fine. Is controlled atmosphere stunning the best we can do? This is from Matt Graves, who writes the Meet Your Markets column. He focuses like on corporate strategy and stuff. He, he's not, he doesn't really know what's happening, I would imagine. And he's pointing to Nicholas Kristof's op-ed about uh, the incredible, incredible uh, undercover investigation by DXC activist Raven Deerbrook of the slaughterhouse in, in Los Angeles, the pig slaughterhouse in Los Angeles. And the use of how absolutely horrifying the, the process is of killing these animals by, by what they call controlled atmosphere stunning, where they, they basically suffocate. He starts out by saying that the column, which Nick Kristoff wrote about this, is sure to attract scathing animal activist comment and probably a few defensive ones from the pork industry. I hope it's going to draw a little attention from the actual public. He thought it was graphic and gut-wrenching. If you watch the video, he says it's hard to justify this controlled atmosphere stunning. You know, what did he think? What did he think was happening to these pigs? The naivete, is it naivete? I don't know. It must be because he's writing He's writing this down in a, in a meat industry site. He's not trying to tell the public that he never knew. The video depicts a CAS, that's controlled atmosphere stunning method, that is both graphically inhumane and sure to invite inflammatory comment from animal activists. I mean, you know, like, what do you think? And possibly from current and prospective pork consumers. Well, let's hope so. Unfortunately, he goes on in his criticism, Smithfield chose to respond to the video only by saying that the process meets all USDA regulations and is approved by the American Veterinary Medical Association. You know, isn't that just pathetic? Isn't it just pathetic? And he concludes by saying, as a meat industry stalwart, Smithfield must be responsible for developing a better method of desensitizing live animals prior to slaughter. You know, the way I would write that sentence is, as a meat industry stalwart, Smithfield must go out of business. But, you know, they keep thinking they can do it just fine. However, Smithfield, along with the other pork big boys, don't seem to want to spend the time, effort, or money to change, as evidenced by the video and their comments. Unless forced which will only come as a result of consumer pressure. I predict that the video and resultant brouhaha may cause change to happen or a decrease in pork demand may occur until the video fades from the memories of consumers. God, I just hope he's right. I really do. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. 
and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of The Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 